Good to see you. It's, uh, I missed all the screaming for Tuesday tour. Apparently we don't have one today. <laughs> I want to say uh, a word of welcome to my wonderful wife who's sitting down here in the second row. Everybody say hello to her. Any woman who can stay married to me for 43 years deserves, uh, deserves kudos. <laughs> deserves kudos. Most of us, uh, they always give me the, uh, the heavy topics. I have no idea. Let God release your sin. Oh, that's a light topic. <laughs> we, we don't like to talk about our sin. E- even here in southern Missouri, here in the flyover zone, where people will talk about almost everything <laughs> to almost anybody at any time, we, we don't like to talk about our sin. We, we talk about, uh, about the, the craziest things. How many of you uh, that didn't grow up in the Midwest have been at Walmart? You're standing in a line at Walmart, and all of a sudden, the person standing beside you will start talking to you about anything. How's the weather over your way? How about them chiefs? Uh, you know, all, all sorts of anything. That, that's proper and acceptable, and, and sometimes even expected here in the Midwest, unless the topic is sin. <laughs> How many of you would uh, would enjoy somebody uh, standing in line with you at Walmart? Hey, the weather's great. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And, and those Chiefs, they actually may they actually may make it to the playoffs this year. Yeah, yeah, they they may. Uh, so tell me, what's the worst sin you've ever done in your life? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah, they'll uh, probably move to the other line. Uh, I'm glad that uh, here at Ozark, our faculty is a little more transparent than that. I approached four faculty members and I asked them to write down, not the worst sin that they'd ever done, (laughs) probably get them all fired, Uh, but... uh, (laughs) but, But I asked them to write down a sin in their life, a little story that I could tell. Uh, and to, to make it a little more innocent, it had to be from childhood. So I'm going to read. I'm going to read uh, uh, a few childhood sins and see if you can uh, guess which faculty member I'm talking about. Here's one. <laughs> when I was about seven or so, my mom made us eat all our vegetables, and we couldn't leave the table before we ate our vegetables. I absolutely hated that. <laughs> one evening, uh, I was being particularly stubborn, and everyone else had left the table, but I was sitting there staring at my veggies. And when my mom finally left the kitchen and went back to her room, I had a great idea. (laughs) I'd simply throw my veggies in the trash can. (laughs) It never crossed my mind that mom would check the trash can. (laughs) Later, when I was sitting in a corner in timeout, imagining one of your profs doing that, sitting in a corner in timeout for my crime, my older brother walked by, smiled, and said, rookie mistake. (laughs) You always put the food a couple of layers down in the trash can. Well, needless to say, I learned my lesson in deception that day. Which of our faculty would actually do something like that? Put it up there. Veggie tail sinner right there. <laughs> Check Shane Wood when he's eating in the calf. Make sure he cleans up those veggies. Well, here's here's another story. When I was young, my friend and I both had off-road dirt bikes. Uh, We had the gear, we had the helmets. The only thing we didn't have was driver's licenses. But on the weekends, we would sneak away from our homes without our parents knowing it and ride the back roads all the way out to the lake and back. We never got caught. 
but I still feel guilty about it to this day. Which of our faculty would actually, and it's not me, by the way, which of our faculty would actually do something like Easy Rider Center? <laughs> you know, so not only was Gary Zustiak a long-haired, dope-taking hippie freak when he was in school, he was... <laughs> He was, he was a motorcycle riding, long haired, dope taking hippie freak. <laughs> Here's another story. When I was in elementary school, my mom ran to the grocery store about six blocks away to get something before school, and she had one instruction while I was gone. I was not to go into my, my brother's bedroom. So, of course, I ignored her instruction and I went into my brother's bedroom while she was gone. My brother didn't like it at all. He pushed me out of his room and tripped me on the way out so that I fell and landed on my right wrist and I broke my wrist. Yep, my sin had immediate consequences, they write, and my brother didn't get in trouble at all. Who is, uh, who is this? Yeah, <laughs> breaking and entering sinner. I wonder who the brother was. Hmm. Let's think about that one for a while. Well, one more, one more. This is a good one. When I was in seventh grade, I was a terribly awkward young man. I smarted off in a music class in what was now, uh, and what is now North uh, Middle School here in Joplin. My comment did not go unnoticed, and the teacher actually called my parents to tell them what I had said. And as a result, my mom forced me to accompany her to the teacher's home that evening and to apologize in person for my egregiously inappropriate behavior. It was humiliating, but a good lesson learned. Who did that? Take a look. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) Chris DeWeld ever doing something like that. Oh, my goodness. My goodness. When I was a grad student, uh, I took a, in Illinois, I took a class on family counseling at Sangamon State University. It's now the University of Illinois at Springfield. And uh, the course was taught by a, a really nice uh, lady. It was a course on family counseling. We found out she had been divorced three times. I wondered exactly what I was getting. And, of course, the course was taught from a secular point of view. And I remember, I remember the discussion one day. The professor was talking to us about, in dealing with uh, family group uh, situations, how to help individuals in the family deal with their guilt feelings how to deal with all those guilt feelings and uh, and I'm sitting out there I'm a grad student at Lincoln taking this class to get my counseling uh, credits in in the summertime and I'm trying to evoke a theological conversation so I raised my hand I raised my hand and I and I and I said wow professor this is all very interesting and it, it's uh, it's uh, I, I'm sure it it's uh, useful in all of that But uh, what I want to know, it seems like we're just dealing with the symptoms, teaching people how to deal with their guilt feelings. As counselors, what can we do to help people deal with the true moral guilt that they have in their lives that give rise to the guilt feelings? And uh, I remember the the gal, she, uh, she got a very thoughtful look on her face. She goes, wow. That's a very interesting question. She said, from my perspective, I'm not even sure that true moral guilt even exists. And if it does, I wouldn't have the slightest idea how to deal with it. 
The only thing I can do is help people deal with their feelings. Well, you know what? I'm glad here at Ozark Christian College that we can help people do more than simply deal with their feelings. My topic, let God release your sin. If we're ever going to really allow him to do that, I think we're really going to have to get a handle on three timeless truths that the scripture lays out for us. And here's truth number one. And it's not even fun to talk about. We have to recognize the ugliness, the ugliness of our sin. It was Easter Sunday. And you know what? You can be very successful in ministry and never talk about the ugliness of sin. You can build the largest church in the United States. You can build the largest church in North America and never talk about sin. How do I know that? Because Joel Olstein has done it. He's built the largest church in the United States, 40, 50,000 every Sunday morning, and, and he just makes it a matter of fact, I will never talk about sin from the pulpit. Two years ago on Easter Sunday, Tracy Smith, reporter for CBS Sunday Morning News, interviewed Joel Osteen on that Easter Sunday morning, pastor of the Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, and she asked him point blank, why won't you preach about the ugliness of sin or God's judgment? And here's what Osteen says. He says, people already feel guilty enough when they come to my church. So I want them to come to Lockwood and be lifted up and to say, you know what, I may not be perfect, but I'm moving on. (laughs) I'm moving forward. I'm doing better. I think that's what really motivates people. Joel Osteen teaches that we're saved from unhappiness and failure, not from sin and God's wrath. Osteen doesn't teach that we need a divine rescue from judgment. He teaches we need a self-improvement plan. It's not very popular to talk about sin. Sometimes preachers get in trouble for emphasizing the ugliness of sin. Randy Garris, is Randy here today? I told him I was going to blaspheme his name. Uh, <laughs> Randy is not only uh, my colleague here at Ozark Christian College and my personal friend, he was my preacher for 20 years, my preacher. My wife was his secretary for over 20 years. I will just tell you after listening to Randy Garrett's preach for 20 years that he mentioned sin every once in a while. <laughs> and one Sunday morning after he'd preached a sermon talking about the, the ugliness of sin and the need for salvation, a couple from the church that was fairly new came up to him and they wanted to talk to him after the, after the church service. And they said, Randy, they said, Randy, we need to talk to you. And here, here's, here's what they said. They said, Randy, we think you've got a problem. We think you've got a problem. You spent most of the time today talking about sin. The church is no place to talk about a subject like that. They actually said that. In fact, we think well, you have such a problem of negativity, we think you need counseling. And then Randy told me they volunteered to pay for the counseling. And then they gave him two books. By Joel Osteen. (laughs) Really true. (laughs) As unpopular as sin is to discuss in our modern world, seems to be a major teaching in the New Testament. 
I'm an Apostle Paul sort of guy, Pauline theology guy, especially a book of Romans guy. Uh, there are 30 words. If you're checking, uh, uh, you're a Greek student and checking things out, there are 30 words in the New Testament that convey the notion of sin. And the Apostle Paul uses 24 of them. Just in the book of Romans, he, he talks about sin, the noun sin, 48 times. He uses the word trespass nine times. He uses the verb to sin seven times. He talks about sinners four times. He uses the term bad 15 times. He uses the term unrighteous seven times. He's never heard of Joel Osteen. <laughs> Now, what in the world does sin mean? I mean? We would take the rest of the semester to do biblical studies on, on the word for sin. The main word for sin in, in the Old Testament is hatah. In the New Testament, it's hamartia. Those might be actually entomologically related. What does it mean? It means to miss the mark. In my, uh, in my uh, evangelism classes, we always do a study of sin. If I had an apple, and I took the apple, and I put it down here on Isaac's head. There we go, big apple. And I came back up here, and I went back here, and I pulled out my hunting compound bow. And I got one of those big deer killing arrows in it, and I pulled it down. I'm going to do the William Tell thing right there. People sitting behind Isaac better clear out just a little bit. (laughs) The last word that Isaac wants to hear when the arrow is flying is, Hamartia. I missed the mark. (laughs) That's what the word sin means. If God's perfect, righteous holiness, if God's perfect character of love and faithfulness and purity, if that is the mark that our lives are supposed to be hurling toward. Hata. Hamartia. We miss the mark. We could spend all week examining the biblical information for sinfulness. Suffice it to say, when we break God's laws, when we miss the mark, when we ignore God's truth, literally all hell begins to break loose in our lives. But you know what? The, the issue of sin is pretty safe to uh, talk about as long as we keep it academic, as long as we keep it word studies and biblical uh, textual information. After all, all the Greek words and the dictionary definitions, they don't really bother me. They don't really make me think about the consequences of my decision. You know, I don't see people leaving David Fish's Greek class in tears every day. What's wrong with you? (laughs) Today we studied the... the, Ooh, that's really cool. We studied the... (laughs) I'm going to use that. We studied the the meaning of the Greek word... Hamartia. (laughs) I don't don't see that happening when, when people come out of Fish's class. But let the presence of the living God, the presence of the living God enter our world. And all of that academic neutrality about sin becomes a thing of the past, doesn't it? You remember the story of Isaiah in the Old Testament? Going to chapel one day, (laughs) there in the Old Testament, he'd been to chapel a 
thousand times just like all of us. On his way to the temple, had to scan his student ID card. Don't want to get called into Montiacus Sandal Makes office in order to have to explain why in the world I'm uh, missing out uh, on chapel. Wonder if the praise band's going to be good this morning. Hope the lutes and the harps aren't too loud. You know, just a typical chapel service in the temple. And then it happened. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called out to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I guess they had fog machines even in the Old Testament. And then... I said, woe is me, I am lost. Older translations say, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We are never going to have a true understanding of the ugliness of our sin until we catch a glimpse of the holy, righteous, pure creator of the universe before whose presence each of us stands in the moral putrefaction of our own personal sin. Oh, it can look so innocent. It always looks innocent when temptation comes our way. After all, I studied, I didn't study at all for this test, but I'm sitting by Susie Smarty Pants and she always gets every answer right. Just be so easy to just look over there and steal her answers. I mean, cheating, everybody does it. Nobody really cares. Or something more serious, I'm out with my girlfriend or boyfriend on the weekend, and you know how it is. Things sometimes begin to get out of hand. (laughs) You're not just fogging up the windows in your car. You're fogging up the windows of all the cars in the parking lot. What were the lyrics of that song that was popular when I was a kid? It can't be wrong if it feels so right. And Satan's lies sound so good that we actually find ourselves believing in them. But the presence of the living God, the presence of the living God, enter the presence of the living God before whom all of our lives stand in naked honesty. And we see sin for what it really is. Sin is a refusal to accept the loving commands of God. Sin is ignorance, pretending to be wise. It is cowardice, pretending to be brave. It is slavery, pretending to be free. It is meanness, pretending to be noble. It is misery, pretending to be happy. It is self-contempt pretending to be satisfied. It is seeing evil and calling it good. It is doing evil and justifying it. It is defending evil 
When there is no defense, sin believes nothing. It hopes nothing. It loves nothing except itself. Gang, you don't need me to go through a litany of potential sins that may plague the campus of Ozark Christian College. Why? Because the Spirit of the living God is here. And I suspect even now, He is revealing to you, right where you sit, the exact nature of your sin. I have no idea what it is. Your professors probably don't have any idea what it is. Your dorm mates don't know. Even your roommate or your best friend might not have any idea. But God knows. God is here. And in his holy presence today, we know, don't we? We know each of us knows. Until we see sin for what it really is, the great ugliness that insults God and destroys lives, we're never going to be released from it. But just knowing it, just knowing the ugliness of our sin isn't the solution, is it? That's why we need a second timeless truth, and it's the good one. (laughs) It's the good one. Here's the second timeless truth. We have to embrace, embrace the sufficiency of Jesus. In the fall of 1807, 1807, a young man, William J., young preacher, 38 years old, brought a notebook and a pencil with him to visit his spiritual mentor. His mentor had been a bad man growing up. He had been a foul-mouthed drunk. He had been a sea captain and a slave trader, ripping men and women and children out of the arms of their, of their family members in Africa and transporting them across the ocean to be sold as slaves in America. A drunken, miserable man who was converted to Christ and became a great preacher, became a great theologian. And wrote one of the greatest songs in the history of Christianity. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. His mentor was the great, uh, the great John Newton. Newton was in his 80s. He was bedridden. His health was failing. His eyesight was failing. His memory was failing. And William J. wanted one last piece of advice before his mentor, before he went home to be with the Lord. Newton looked up at uh, the young man from his bed when asked for advice. And he said these words, the last recorded words of John Newton. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. In Romans class, we look at a wide range of word pictures the Apostle Paul uses to describe exactly what happened up there on the cross when Jesus died for me. We use words like justification. Out at Central City, I'm preaching through Romans. So I'm talking about this all the time. And I'm teaching Romans this. I can't get away from Romans. I'm going to live on the Roman road in heaven when I get there. (laughs) 
Words like justification, God declares us not guilty when we accept the finished work of Christ on the cross. Words like reconciliation, the relationship we have with God is restored because of what Jesus did on the cross. Words like redemption, the price has been paid so that I could come back and know God and and have fellowship with Him. But a word that I like maybe more than all the other words is this weird, strange word in the New Testament. The word propitiation. We don't even know most of us what it means anymore. It's used uh, four times in the New Testament. Once by the Apostle Paul, unless he wrote Hebrews, and then he uses it twice. And then two times by the Apostle John. I want to put those places it's used up here and just read them very quickly. We're justified, Paul says, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as, here it is, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then John, in two places, John says, He is the propitiation of our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Unless you're a Calvinist, of course, and you have to revise that. But then, John 1, 4, uh, 1 John 4, 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. What in the world does that word mean? Here's what it means. God's righteous indignation, his wrath was leveled against me because of the ugliness of my sin. But Jesus came and stood between us. He is the enmity that separates the seed of the serpent from the seed of Eve. And he in his body bore our sins on the cross. God's righteous indignation and anger against all of my ugliness was leveled against Jesus himself on the cross. Listen to John Newton's words as a theologian talking about this. He says, look unto Jesus Christ. Look unto him as he hung naked, wounded, bleeding, dead and forsaken on the cross. Look unto him again now as he reigns in glory, possessed in all power of heaven and earth, with thousands and thousands of saints and angels worshiping before him, and ten thousand times ten thousand ministering unto him. And then compare your sins with his blood, your wants with his fullness, your unbelief with his faithfulness, your weakness with his strength, your inconsistency with his everlasting love, and you'll know why we love him. The truth of Scripture is that the sufficiency of Christ on the cross is greater than all of my sin. Great artists have had a way of showing this. Put up Rembrandt. One of my favorite uh, paintings from the Renaissance uh, era is Rembrandt. Rembrandt's great painting, The Raising of the Cross. He paints it in the darkness of uh, his style. But you see around the cross, all of the high officials looking. But look down at the foot of the cross. There's a fellow dressed in, in medieval garb. It's Rembrandt, a self-portrait of Rembrandt. He's even got his little painter's beret on. And he is hoisting the cross into its place to let everyone know for all time that he understood that Jesus' death on the cross was for his sins. My sins sent Jesus to the cross where they were paid for completely. Modern Modern artists have done the same thing. In that great epic of the death of Christ, the passion 
of the Christ. Director Mel Gibson, who even though he's had many difficulties in recent years with his own personal life, is a fervent, ardent believer in the death of Christ. Put a, If you see the passion of the Christ, here is a still of the scene where Jesus' hand is laid out for the first time on the cross beam. And there is a Roman soldier's hand holding the nail. Many of you know this. That is Mel Gibson's hand, the director. He said, here is a scene where I have to come into the movie. I have to hold the nail in my left hand, his sinister hand. In Latin, the left hand is the manus sinastra, the evil hand that would hold the nail while it's driven with the right hand. He says, I had to hold the nail so that everyone would know that it's my sins that sent Jesus to the cross. Diane Sawyer interviewed Mel Gibson before the release of The Passion of the Christ. Some of you are a little older remember this. There was a big, big stink in the media about whether that movie would even be allowed to be released because some people said, it's anti-Semitic. You're blaming, are you blaming the Jewish people for the death of Jesus? And Diane Sawyers interviewed uh, Mel Gibson. It was an hour-long interview talking about all the different aspects. Finally, at the end of the interview, she just got down and point-blankly asked, Well, Mr. Gibson, who then is responsible for the death of Jesus on the cross? And Mel Gibson says, you want to know the big answer? Here's the big answer. You are, and I am. We're all responsible for Jesus' death on the cross. And if you would have taken a wet fish and hit Diane Sawyer in the face with it, she could not have looked more surprised. Apparently, the concept that Jesus died on the cross because she was a sinner had never, ever entered into her mind. The great theologian of the 1600s, Stephen Chark, wrote, The dying groans of Christ show the horrible nature of sin in the eyes of God. He who was the greatest and greater than the world... So his suffering declares sin to be the greatest evil in the world. How evil, listen to this line, how evil is that sin that must make God bleed to cure it? Here is the great truth that the gospel makes clear. Our sin may be ugly, but Christ's death is greater. Where sin abounded, Paul says in Romans, grace did much more abound. Well, where I'm behind times, you want me to preach the rest of my sermon or just draw it to a conclusion? I better preach the rest of it. I got to answer to God, not to Isaac. So. (laughs) The ugliness of my sin is real. It's like Tony Campola said. If you could see my sin, you wouldn't be standing here listening to me. (laughs) That's okay. If I could see yours, I wouldn't talk to you. So that's the truth. The ugliness of our sin is real. But the sufficiency of Christ is even greater. 
But there's one more truth that we have to grasp in order to be released from our sin. And it's the tough truth. We must submit to the necessity of repentance. Oh. I wish there was an easier way. I wish there was an easier way. I really do. But there is no easy way to be released from sin. The release of sin cost God the torturous death of his son on the cross for my sins. And so the release of sin must cost us the humiliation of repentance. We're such gigantic phonies every Sunday, trotting off to church as if we've got it all under control. Most Christians, most Christians, we've, we've played the game so long, most Christians that trot off to church go, am I the only one that doesn't have things under control? Am I the only one struggling in areas of my life? We're all struggling. We're all struggling. Here's God's solution. Repent. Repent. The Hebrew word for repent is, it's an interesting word, shuv in the Hebrew. My Old Testament prophet, Trinity, Walter Kaiser said, it's a great word. The prophets knew the people of Israel needed a little shuv in the right direction. It means uh, repent is how it's normally, turn, turn, go a different direction. It's the 12th most common verb in the entire Old Testament. 164 times it's used of moving away from sin and toward God. The turning of repentance is twofold. I have to turn away from the things that have been destroying me. Turn away from that which is nailing Jesus to the cross. And turn to God and embrace that great forgiveness that he has to offer. Repentance is the same word, metanoia, in the New Testament. It has the same meaning. It's only when we come to God and confess our sins in repentance that God will forgive us of those sins. What did did that disciple whom Jesus loved say in his great epistle? If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is righteous. He'll forgive us our sins. And he'll cleanse us from all sins unrighteousness a theology lesson gang isn't going to bring us to repentance only God can do that you know if a vision of God that Isaiah had in the Old Testament in the temple so many years ago was enough to drive him to repentance and to the release of his sins what can God do for us today as we behold through the eyes of faith the vision of Jesus dying on the cross For us, only a vision of God will do. And so as I close the message today, I want us to watch a very graphic music video that has scenes from Mel Gibson's epic work in it, The Passion of the Christ. And as we watch and listen to this beautiful old chorus, I want each one of us, preacher included, I want us to think about the ugliness of that hidden sin that we think we've got everyone fooled about. And I want us to see the sufficiency of Christ. And I want us to hear God's call to repentance. Repentance.
so that we can be released from our sin. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land.